0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Kevin Chilton, the Explorer Chair of Space Warfighting Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. And welcome to our Schriever Space Power Forum Series. We're so pleased today to have Audrey Schaefer, the Director for Space Policy at the National Security Council join us. In her role there, Ms. Schaefer advises the National Security Advisor and administration officials on national security civil and commercial space policies and strategies. Ms. Schaefer has been engaged in numerous national security space policy positions since joining the Office of the Secretary of Defense in 2010. She was the Director of Space Policy and Strategy in the Office of Secretary of Defense Space Policy Branch, as well as the Deputy Director of Space Policy Engagement. Ms. Schaefer was also detailed to the Bureau of Arms Control, Verification and Compliance with the Department of State. She's a graduate of George Washington University Space Policy Institute where she served as a Presidential Management Fellow. Audrey, welcome to the Space Power Forum. Thanks for joining us today. And I'd like to kick things off by giving you an opportunity to uh, give everyone a quick overview of the administration's space priorities framework through some opening remarks.
1: Thanks very much, General Chilton. And I also wanted to thank uh, Chris Stone from AFA who invited me to speak today, as well as the whole uh, Mitchell team for organizing this event. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, So yeah, as you said, I wanted to just spend a few minutes talking about this administration's space priorities framework, uh, which was released by the administration on December 1st of last year at the administration's inaugural meeting of the National Space Council, uh, which was, of course, chaired by Vice President Harris. So at that meeting, uh, she and the other council members highlighted three areas where the administration is focusing some of its initial space policy efforts. Uh, First, developing norms of behavior for space activities. Second, using data collected from space to address the climate crisis And third, using space activities to inspire the next generation to pursue education and careers in science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, so that we have the workforce we need, uh, you know, to maintain our competitive advantages into the future. And if you haven't watched uh, the video uh, from that meeting, you should, it's online. Um, And I'd really recommend it because for me, even as, you know, kind of a a lifelong space, um, I don't know, geek or whatever, uh, it was very uh, inspiring, I thought, to hear such a diverse set of cabinet secretaries and other senior uh, government officials talk about just the the myriad of ways that our nation leverages space uh, for the benefit of the American people and people around the world and, you know, what our government is doing to safeguard those benefits for current and future generations. But I did want to highlight that, you know, the three areas that were talked about at that meeting are really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, And so the space priorities framework, and I did bring my, um, my my sort of copy so you can see what it looks like and find it online on the administration's uh, National Space Council page. Um, But what it does is it lays out uh, the priorities in a much more comprehensive way. Um, So the document itself, like it really has two sections and I wanna kind of walk through each of those sections. Um, The first are the benefits uh, from space activities, or in other words, how does our nation, uh, people of our nation, people around the world really benefit from our use of space and from space programs and other activities. And then the second section is what are our space policy priorities in the United States? Um, our priorities for policies, regulations, uh, programs, investments, et cetera. And when we look at that first uh, part of the document of how our nation benefits from space activities, it breaks it down into, you know, I, I look at it as sort of two different categories one that's more focused on the benefits we accrue here at home, and the other which looks uh, more at how space enables what we do uh, abroad and with other countries. Um, so here at home, um, it talks about the ways in which space is really integral to our economy. Right. Uh, you know, if you've been following space uh, at all, you know, that space services like GPS, you know, facilitate sectors of our economy as varied as agriculture and transportation. And, you know, the, the booming U.S. commercial space industry, which I find very inspiring, is just creating new jobs you know, across our nation and spurring innovation in high tech fields. Um, data collected from space also helps us, you know, predict the weather. It's raining here in Washington. I knew that before I woke up this morning because I looked at last night's weather, Um, and understanding, you know, climate change so we can better prepare, uh, communities across America for extreme weather events. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about how space, you know, inspires our youth to get more involved, um, you know, in science and technology to build the workforce of the future. Now around the world, um, you know, space is really a source of American leadership and strength. Um, It enables us to demonstrate our technological prowess. Space is hard, um, and pushing the frontiers of space exploration, space science, uh, we really demonstrate our national ability to execute complex, large-scale projects. Space is also a tool we can use to expand our network of alliances and partnerships, which is one of our most important strategic advantages as a nation. Uh, we broaden our network of partnerships and we work with countries we might not otherwise work with, but who have an interest in working in space. Um, and we're also able to deepen relationships with longstanding allies, such as our military allies, uh, by expanding our cooperation into new areas like space. And as I'm sure this audience is well aware, you know, space enables our power projection, our ability to respond to crises worldwide, whether those are security crises or humanitarian crises. It allows us to maintain awareness across the globe, communicate with our forces and our leaders and really to bring decisive effects uh, to the battlefield if and when they're needed. Um, So with that context um, on why space is important to America then the second half of the priorities framework goes into you know sort of across the board uh, what are this, the things that this administration is going to focus on Um, And again, that half the document is broken down into two sections. I also like to think about it, you know, one of it, which is more domestic, looking at how we're going to maintain a robust US space sector across, you know, the variety of activities we have here. And the other, which uh, again is more international, looking at how the United States will lead the global community in preserving the use of space for current and future generations. Uh, this, the, the items that are found in this priority section really should come as no surprise to anyone who's been following space policy uh, for a few years now, because they're really long-standing priorities that have endured across um, administrations and do have strong bipartisan support. Uh, the framework describes how we're going to maintain our leadership in space science, space exploration, including maintaining the Artemis and Gateway programs that were established by the last administration and continuing, you know, our longstanding history of, expo- of robotic exploration of the solar system and the universe. Um, it also discusses how we're going to invest, you know, in science and in engineering, which is a common theme, you know, for this administration as a key enabler to a robust space program in the future. As the council members talked about in December, of course, we are putting a priority on using space to address the climate crisis. Um, satellites are a critical source of climate data, and we remain committed to the open dissemination of Earth observation data to facilitate, um, you know, our efforts worldwide to address uh, the climate uh, climate change. Again, in keeping with longstanding bipartisan priorities, uh, that. document talks about how we're going to foster a policy and regulatory environment that enables a competitive U.S. commercial space sector. I think this is absolutely critical, um, not just because, you know, the United States has an international legal obligation to authorize and supervise the space activities of its nationals, but really we need to figure out how to support the burgeoning U.S. commercial space sector, provide certainty and clarity in our regulations, and ensure that our commercial space activities are being conducted in a responsible and sustainable manner. I'll spend a few more minutes talking about uh, what the framework says from a security perspective, since of course here we are you know, at the Air Force Association. And it does talk about both Homeland Security as well as national security, uh, talking about how we need to ensure that the space capabilities that support our critical infrastructure or are themselves critical infrastructure are protected in the same way that we protect terrestrial infrastructure. And when describing national security space activities, uh, the framework says the United States will defend its national security interests from the growing scope and scale of counter space threats. Um, It characterizes the strategic environment in a way that would surely surprise no one um, in this audience uh, talking about how intensifying strategic competition presents a serious threat to U.S. national security interests, including in space, and that the military doctrines of competitor nations view space as a critical means Uh, to reduce uh, military effectiveness and to win future wars. We then described all the steps we're taking and actually a number of them uh, to address those threats in a manner that also contributes to to strategic stability. Uh, First, accelerating our transition to a more resilient national security space posture. Second, strengthening our ability to detect and attribute hostile acts in space. Third, protecting our forces from space and space-enabled threats. Fourth, uh, leveraging commercial space capabilities and services to meet national security requirements. Fifth, deepening the integration of U.S. national security capabilities with those of our allies and partners. And last but certainly not least, uh, especially for this administration, engaging diplomatically, including with strategic competitors, to enhance stability. Now, before I close, I did wanna just touch on briefly the the last uh, piece of it, uh, the document, which is really what we're doing internationally to preserve the use of space for current and future generations, which again, has been a longstanding uh, priority, which is only becoming, I think, more urgent. Um, First is really a recognition of the need to strengthen the rules-based international order for space, the system of guidelines, rules, and norms that govern space activities. We have to lead in the implementation of those measures we already have on the books, And then we also need to lead in the development of new ones. We also have to accelerate our efforts to establish a space traffic coordination system. We need to work both here at home as well as with other nations to establish the standards, policies, and practices that enable data sharing and coordination among operators to prevent accidents in space. And finally, we do need to do more about orbital debris mitigation and remediation uh, because a future space environment that's too cluttered to be accessible is not in anyone's interest, not least of which our nation, which as I talked about in the beginning, benefits from our use of space in so many ways. Um, So I know with that, I covered actually a whole lot of ground uh, in a pretty short period of time. I hope that what you'll take away from kind of uh, all that sort of holistic discussion of the administration's priorities is there's really a considerable amount of continuity. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. I think that it's a good thing that our community has pretty strong support uh, you know, across the aisle, across the parties, across both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue. I think that's a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, what we talk about this in the priorities framework really does build upon the great work of many prior administrations, and I'm sure many of you who are listening today. Um, so with that, I, again, I want to just thank you for inviting me to participate in the event. I know we're going to have a lot of time for questions, um, and I'm looking forward to our discussion.
0: Thank you, Audrey. That was a terrific rundown of the administration space uh, framework uh, and their priorities. Um, if One of the things I found to be refreshing was the language in the National Space Priorities Framework that said space-based assets are a key part of our nation's critical infrastructure. And you mentioned that right up front. You know, key constellations such as GPS, I would say, are critical infrastructure in their own right, Uh, given the interconnected nature of terrestrial critical infrastructure with space-based components like the electric grid, which depend on the GPS timing signal. Given that, what are the national security staff and interagency looking at doing to actively protect our space-based critical infrastructure?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. I mean, first of all, I I, I think it's really great um, that we've recognized that, you know, it's sort of Um, Irrelevant, whether a piece of critical infrastructure is in space or on land, right? I mean, that all these aspects of our critical infrastructure are equally important in terms of, uh, you know, the policies and practices and resources that we apply um, to invest uh, in their protection. Um, And as you mentioned, you know, so many of our space systems are an integral part of, you know, broader critical infrastructure of our nation, um, whether that's communication services, emergency services, or even um, our our defense, excuse me, our defense industrial base. And so I think it's a good thing that we look at this challenge sort of holistically, um, that we apply sort of those same general principles of critical infrastructure protection to space systems. And then we don't necessarily look at space in isolation, but really in terms of Uh, the value that it provides uh, to whether it's, you know, uh, part of the energy grid or part of the communications network, right? We have to think about it holistically. So some of the specific, you know, ways, uh, you know, actually going back to the last administration that we've looked at uh, protecting space, critical infrastructure, space-based aspects of our critical infrastructure. First, uh, Space Policy Directive 5, which was the first ever U.S. policy on enhancing cybersecurity for space systems. That was issued by the last administration, and it's one that remains in effect. I think it's really done a good job of elevating awareness of cybersecurity threats for our space sector, because if space is sort of the weakest link in your critical infrastructure, that's not helpful. Um, second, you know, establishing the space information and sharing analysis center, the space ISAC, which has enabled real-time information and threat sharing amongst you know, the public and private sectors. And finally, DHS has a cyber sec- or, excuse me, DHS's CISA, the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency, has a space systems critical infrastructure working group, looking specifically at how we raise awareness of threats to critical infrastructure, how we share information, and how we make recommendations on enhancing the security of our space infrastructure.
0: Thank you, thank you. Um, I noticed in the Space Priorities Framework document that space and space power was referred to numerous times as a key enabler to terrestrial activities, such as you know the military. Uh, Obviously, the Space Force is part of the military, and I would think most understand that space power is and has been a critical enabler to many things across our diplomatic, economic, and military power as a country. But what I did not see uh, was any mention in the document that space is a warfighting domain now, just like air, land, and sea. Does that phrase's absence indicate a shift in US policy?
1: Yeah. So I think the space priorities framework is quite clear-eyed about the threats to U.S. interests in space. Um, You know, as I quoted earlier and and, uh, I wanted to quote it again, um, you know, it says the military doctrines of competitor nations identify space as critical to modern warfare and view the use of counter space capabilities as a means to both reduce our military effectiveness and to win future wars. And then it says that we are going to protect and defend our national security interests from the growing scope and scale of counter space threats. Um, and as I laid out, right, it describes the many different ways in which our nation benefits from the use of space, uh, whether that's from uh, those national security benefits or from benefits in other fields like uh, you know our scientific exploration, or frankly, as an engine of economic growth. Um, so I think to really answer your question, what I would say that is that in addition to being a warfighting domain. This administration really recognizes those other ways that space benefits uh, our country and uh, the American people, right? It's a place where we derive tremendous economic growth, uh, where humans in, uh, are living and working in, in increasing numbers, as you yourself, uh, you know, would appreciate. And so I think really it's a broader uh, desire, a desire to put Um, the national security activities within a broader context um, and to be mindful sort of of all the many interests that we have in space and the need to advance those in a holistic manner.
0: Okay so just the absence of of the term war fighting domain doesn't mean that the policy has changed is what you're saying.
1: Yeah I don't think so I mean the threats certainly haven't uh, changed it's just uh, a recognition that we need to treat this not sort of in isolation but together with other U.S. national interests.
0: Okay, but just to pull the thread a little further, you know, in every other domain, we feel both offensive and defensive capabilities. Does the administration uh, envision doing that as well in this domain, which is not dissimilar to the other domains when it comes to national security interests and potential conflict?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we're doing when we focus in on the national security piece is really looking at the challenge um, holistically. Um, there's been a lot of talk publicly and about the need to accelerate our transition to a more resilient space architecture, and I think that really is the foundation of our overall uh, deterrence posture. Now, I don't want to sort of geek out here on deterrence theory, right, but most folks would recognize, you know, the two components of deterrence denial of benefit as well as imposition of cost. Um, And obviously, I think it's it's sort of, it's blindingly obvious, right? How a resilient architecture supports denying the benefit of of an adversary's attack in the first place, right? Making another country question whether their attack would even be successful uh, or whether an attack would be worth the risk. But I think resilience is also really important for the imposition of cost side of this equation as well. Um, As we all know, the old adage, right? That satellites have no mothers. Um, And I think a legitimate question that would face any president, any administration, is how to respond to an attack on an inanimate object, even an inanimate object that provides important benefits for our society. But, you know, the more resilient your satellite architecture is to uh, attacks, the more violence an adversary would need to commit in order to inflict damage on us and to deny you know, sort of our use of space. And the more violent uh, that attack is, I think the greater the likelihood that there would be both the political will and the public awareness of the need to respond with a significant imposition of cost. Um, So that's why, you know, I I don't like to just treat one aspect of sort of the space security, I've been calling it the space security stool, right? Um, Resilience, um, offensive, defensive capabilities, and then, you know, sort of norms and diplomacy. We really can't treat each of these three things in isolation, we have to look at them together.
0: Okay, but I think when I peel that back, I think all I hear is our plan is a defensive posture in space, resilient. And from a deterrence perspective, I know of no example in history where defense has ever deterred an adversary without having the threat of an offense. Further, if if we were to be attacked, our satellites were to be attacked by the Chinese or the Russians, the Russians having demonstrated the capability, the Chinese having fielded it, um, how we respond to that um, will be important, certainly, and a difficult decision for the president. But if the only response to this president or a future administration is to strike a nuclear armed adversary in some other form or fashion, rather than to counter in space, uh, where, as you point out, there are no uh, casualties incurred directly, um, it seems to be um, an, an, an inadequate form of deterrence in my view. Yeah, I, mean,
1: I I would say we, re- we ought to be thinking about deterrence holistically, right? There's no such thing as just sort of deterrence that's uh, limited to the space domain, right? We should be thinking about all the elements of power that we bring to bear. I mean, if you even look at the current situation in Ukraine, uh, yes, obviously we're Uh, you know, having a deterrence and assurance posture with our military forces, but we're also imposing a significant number of costs, uh, you know, in the economic arena as well, Uh, which isn't to say that, uh, you know, economic imposition of costs is uh, the only tool we have in our toolkit, but I would just caution against looking sort of very narrowly at, uh, you know, space for space's sake and that all, you know, response options necessarily would need to be in the space domain.
0: No, certainly not. And I'm, I, I would agree that all elements of national power are important, but in no other domain do we fail to field offensive capability. And certainly diplomatic and economic pressures can be effective. They haven't been in the invasion of Ukraine uh, to date. They didn't stop the, the aggression from happening. Uh, but that's a unique case, and and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I want to stay focused on space. So. Thanks very much for that. Um, let's see, um, you've also, well, well, back to the resilient architecture, which I think is very important. I would agree with you. My, I guess my question is, you know, what, what do we do for the next 10 years since I haven't seen, we've talked about resiliency for the last 10 years and we haven't put up any new resilient constellations. And so we're in a period of vulnerability, it would seem where our adversaries can attack our satellites Um, and uh, until we have that more resilient constellation, how do we bridge that gap?
1: Well, as you may know, one of the priorities of this administration is to accelerate that transition to resilience. Um, It is quite unfortunate that we've been talking about resilience from Actually, more than 10 years. I I recently pulled all the quotes from all the various space policy documents where we said that we were going to transition to a more resilient architecture. Um, We've been talking about it for more than 10 years, uh, but I think this administration is really going to put those words into action. Um, I I cannot preview the administration's FY23 budget, um, but I do hope that we're going to see some new investments in that area uh, to really demonstrate that we are actually serious about making the transition that we've talked about for so long.
0: Um, strategic stability appears to be a key theme of the policy, and uh, responsible behavior in space is linked to that. I was wondering if you know could you expand further on the topic of norms of behavior, and how the interagency is looking at addressing this issue with China and Russia, two nations who don't have a very good record with orbital debris generation or kinetic weapon testing. What what do you see uh, the interagency looking at to address these concerns uh, with regard to norms of behavior and perhaps enforcing compliance with them once they are agreed to? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so we are spending a considerable amount of time uh, looking at norms of behavior. Uh, And if you actually go back to the National Space Council meeting that I mentioned, that was one of the focus areas um, of the meeting. And in fact, uh, my boss, uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, talked about the need to put more energy on looking at national security-focused norms, right? Because we've had actually a fair amount of progress, I would say, in other areas, uh, whether that's um, expanding the number of nations who are signatories to the Artemis Accords, for example, which are uh, intended to be norms that guide civil space activities, or implementing the UN's uh, long-term sustainability guidelines, which, of course, are intended to apply excuse me, apply to all nations and all uh, space operators. So what we are focused on right now is looking at concepts and proposals for norms and transparency and confidence building measures that are really focused on those national security space activities. Uh, You know, in the best case, right, having a strong foundation of rules and norms uh, helps enhance stability, right? Uh, But even in the worst case, um, it helps you identify who the rule breakers are. um, And as you mentioned, you know, build the political and the public will to actually respond. and I think that uh, I'm not going to like preview any particular policy proposals that might be coming out, uh, but just to sort of assure you that this is something that we're we're hard at work on. Um, I'd also add, you know that these this will be a uh, Focus of conversation um, if and when we're having strategic stability dialogues uh, with both the Russians um, and the Chinese. Uh, we have to be able to communicate at a minimum which kinds of behaviors we find concerning. Uh, potentially, we can work towards establishing mechanisms to reduce risk um, in areas with high potential for miscalculation. And then, you know, over time, perhaps can work towards establishing a shared understandings of what those norms of behavior ought to be to really enhance stability in that shared domain.
0: Terrific. Um, certainly, I, I would think going forward, uh, verification will be important And and as you've, you talked about earlier, attribution. Uh, are they, you know, if we do agree on norms of behavior, are they actually following them? Or if they're not, how do you uh, recognize that and hold them accountable? You know, one of the things uh, that I pushed for a long time ago, when I was the commander of Air Force Space Command and Stratcom, uh, when those organizations led our DOD space effort, efforts, was for increased space situational awareness. In the enhancement of space situational awareness and the movement of the space traffic management mission from the DOD to the Department of Commerce, it, is that important? And is it going to happen sooner than later? And and then, what is the White House position on? strengthening our our ability to understand what is happening in the domain.
1: Yeah, this is a really critical issue and I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up. It's also really multifaceted. Um, as, as you're well aware, it's incredibly important for the DoD to have robust uh, space domain awareness capabilities, uh, you know, not just to identify who is or isn't following the rules, right, but, but maintaining, you know, certainly broad awareness of going, uh, what's going on in space and not just, you know, tracking objects, but really characterizing them, understanding what their capabilities are, what they're doing, and pairing, you know, that awareness and that characterization with the broader geopolitical picture in order to be able to detect indications of hostile acts and be prepared to respond. This absolutely has to be the focus of the DOD and the national security community uh, more generally. But it's also critically important that all space operators have access to world class space flight safety services. Right. A collision in space is in absolutely no one's interest. Um, And with the growing number of both objects in space as well as just the growing number of space operators, uh, we have to make sure that information on where objects are and where they're predicted to be um, is available to everyone. furthermore we need to start developing the domestic and the international you know sort of regulations and governance for space operators and then you know the national governments that supervise them so we can work together on space traffic coordination right everyone has to be following the same rules everyone knows has to know who to call when there's an issue and how to work out um you know uh, potential conjunctions um as you know this broader you know, space flight safety mission and this broader international engagement on space traffic coordination is really not an inherently military function. It, we need our military operators to be focused on characterizing those threats, uh, both you know, to our space systems, but really more broadly of how space plays into broader threats to our national interests. And this is where you know, the Department of Commerce comes in. Um, it is absolutely critical that they be given the authorities and the resources uh, to do this broader space traffic coordination mission.
0: Okay, so similar to the FAA, I guess you would say, you know, they that's not a military organization they keep our aircraft separated safely in, in flight in peacetime. Uh, it's, is that kind of the analogy? Is that a good analogy?
1: Yeah, I think it's one of the analogies. You know, I think another analogy is actually to the National Weather Service, uh, where NOAA provides information on weather forecasting, like we talked about earlier. Um, And, you know, that's one of the reasons that the Department of Commerce is well postured, because they sort of have that experience of how we provide sort of this public uh, good of weather information. um, And then to translate that experience into providing, you know, again, what is a public good of spaceflight safety information.
0: Okay. But, you know, it's similar in, in the air. Uh, we have the FAA in peacetime, but we also have uh, the military has its own radars and sensors to determine the air picture, if you will, in, in, in a conflict. So you're not suggesting that you would anyway any way diminish the uh, capabilities that the, the Space Force or U.S. Space Command in particular would need to characterize the environment uh, and understand threats and react to those threats in uh, either pre or post-conflict.
1: Oh, absolutely. This is a yes and, right? We absolutely need to maintain all of the capabilities that we have within the Department of Defense, um, which frankly ought to be put more towards that, uh, you know, uh, characterization of threats rather than sort of just the pure tracking of objects and maintaining the space catalog piece of it. Um, So we need to maintain the capabilities that the DoD has and much of the data that's collected Uh, from those DOD sensors can and should be leveraged uh, by the Department of Commerce. But then, yes, we also need to build out the commerce piece of it in terms of what additional sensors or data they might be able to acquire from the private sector, the analytical capabilities that they would need to do the mission, um, and and really kind of bring that all into the 21st century, which, you know, quite frankly, uh, is just, like I said, in terms of the number of objects and operators, is presenting, you know, orders of magnitude more things, um, you know, sort of in that catalog and that need to be assessed and, uh, and analyzed than we have ever done previously
0: oh no, that's great um, you mentioned earlier um, partnering with commercial space and i, I would agree with you the uh, the rise of some of the, the uh, new companies out there uh, and the fact that the united states uh, through those companies has returned to launching commercial satellites for other countries or, or other or users is exciting um, is the administration appears to be, staying the course on supporting that, which is terrific. I was curious how you see commercial space providers playing in the national security area beyond you know, launching commercial satellites, providing global internet, et cetera. Where do you see their niche in uh, supporting national security?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, what I see happening in the U.S. commercial space sector is really, in my opinion, nothing short of incredible. Uh, You know, if you just look even three or four years ago, um, I mean, I don't have numbers. I wish I had a cool statistic to offer you today. But I mean, the growth is just tremendous Um, in terms of the both the uh, kinds of capabilities and services that are available. Right. The private sector is doing things that five, 10 years ago would have been solely the province of governments in terms of the capabilities that we're seeing launched into orbit, um, and then also just the sheer number of companies and the amount of private equity that's going into these, um, into these new ventures. And so I think, you know, from a national securities perspective, it would be foolish of us not to find a way to harness um, all this energy and investment. I, you know, it's truly a win-win insofar as, you know, the government can provide a source of business for the private sector, and the private sector then uh, helps to provide capacity, resilience, as well as innovation. Um, now, of course, not every single mission uh, that the, the national security community does is necessarily going to be ripe for um, commercial activities, uh, either because there's some bespoke government requirement um, or just if there's no business case. Uh, but I think in areas where the sort of the interests uh, converge, um, you know, sort of shame on us if we don't find a good way to leverage of what the private sector is doing, uh, both you know, to increase our overall capacity, capabilities, uh, and just like sort of the resilience of this of the architecture that's um, you know that we can leverage for national security uh, uses, and and I'm heartened. I mean, there's there's been a, a real focus. Um, uh, you know, sort of as part of that broader conversation on resilience, there's been a focus on how do we leverage uh, commercial capabilities as part of a broader strategy. And I think that's uh, causing a lot of folks within the national security community to take a fresh look at what the private sector um, has to offer and figuring out new ways, new acquisition approaches, right? How, how do we, you know, work within the existing acquisition rules, um, some of which are actually quite flexible, um, to leverage uh, commercial capabilities, you know, since often government and industry work on like different timescales. Um, so there's Again, there's, I think, a lot of uh, focus being put on that area, and I am very hopeful that we're going to build a good way forward
0: there. And it's also certainly, as you mentioned, uh, energized, I think, the next generation of uh, students coming out of school or in school to uh, join into the space community uh, and to be either part of uh, the military aspect of space, the new Space Force, but also in these commercial opportunities uh, that you've discussed, I think that's terrific. That, would you like to say a little more on, on on your views on on the STEM side of this or the educational side?
1: Well, I mean, I, you know, look, I'm one of those kids, right, who was inspired by uh, space when I was a young uh, a young girl. Uh, you know, I, I think, I mean, it's a little cliche, right, to say that space inspires um, our kids to study science and math, but it certainly inspired me. Um, And so I think the importance of continuing, uh, not just to do stuff in space, but to do stuff that's new and innovative and really pushes the bounds is what can capture um, our imagination. But then you've got to actually capture those kids into the system and and have them like sort of enjoy that learning about science and math. And I'm not an educator, so I don't really want to speak to how we do that, but sort of it's the whole pipeline, right? And space can, I think, be like sort of a spark at the beginning of that pipeline.
0: I think that's great, and, and you know, I, I think we're seeing palpable results. General Raymond mentioned uh, to me that uh, I think he's getting ten applicants for every open billet in the Space Force, and and they're all, you know, which means you're they're attracting outstanding people that want to, to come in and do that, and that's a sea change from uh, 12, 15 years ago, I would say, and uh, it just shows that exciting programs draw uh, that that excitement trickles down into our. Uh, our next generation of engineers and, and scientists who want to participate. But but shifting back to the military uh, side of this, you mentioned alliances earlier. I was wondering, uh, and the importance of that for uh, our, our deterrence and strength, can you expand a little bit on how you might envision our uh, close allies, uh, specifically supporting, uh, deterring the Chinese and the Russians from taking offensive actions in space against our critical space assets? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, again, I I wouldn't really look at it necessarily as space deterrence sort of in isolation, right? I think you really need to look at deterrence holistically. And so I think the question is how do our allies uh, who join with us in conducting military space operations support our overall deterrence uh, posture? And I think what we've actually seen happen um, in Europe over the past uh, few weeks really demonstrates the strength of certainly the NATO alliance, uh, but more broadly, um, America's alliances around the world. And I think the more we integrate our military partners into every facet of what we do um, you know, within our overall joint force. You know, I think not only the stronger uh, of a deterrence posture we show and that we are a combined force able to respond together uh, with the political will, but also that we're sort of interoperable to the point where you know, maybe you can sort of deny one ally a particular um, use of space in one area, but you know, perhaps not another, or there are a, a myriad of capabilities that we could use uh, to impose costs in response. Um, And so over the last many years, actually, we've been working to strengthen our alliances uh, within the military space operations uh, uh, world uh, to uh, both look at how we harmonize, you know, policies, of course, but also really operations, right? How do we integrate our operations? How do we have um, either joint capabilities or interoperable capabilities? And most of that work is done through the DOD's uh, Combined Space Operations Initiative.
0: Okay, so uh, maybe a little more specifically on how they could help militarily. Uh, in this area. Could could you expand on that a little bit?
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, again, this is an area where it's sort of uh, in parallel with the incredible um, growth in private sector activities. We're also seeing sort of increasingly uh, increasing interest Um, on the military side uh, to use space for national security and for military activities, uh, both from our sort of closest and most traditional allies, as well as from other countries um, who we have strong military partnerships with. And the more that those countries invest in space capabilities, uh, whether those are, you know, satellite communications, uh, PNT augmentation systems, space situational awareness, right, the more capabilities that those countries are able to bring to bear for our combined defense. Um, And I think that's actually really important for creating, you know, a balanced relationship uh, between, you know, all of the parties. And so, you know, I think actually we're getting there in terms of our allies, you know, just building up their capacity and bringing it to the table.
0: Thank you. Well, Audrey, this has been great, but I don't want to hog the entire space power forum here. I know we have uh, quite a few listeners that have joined the forum. And uh, as we go forward here uh, with Q and a from our, 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 listeners, I'd just like to remind them that uh, you can participate in the Q&A by using the raise the hand function on your device. Uh, Lucas is gonna help screen the questions as they come in. So uh, when Lucas calls on you, please unmute your microphone and state your name and your affiliation so that our guests uh, will will know uh, who you are and and who you represent. You can can also submit questions in writing uh, using the Q&A function In which case, Lucas will read the question aloud to our guests. So again, Audrey, thanks for giving me this opportunity to to, uh, spend a majority of our time together asking questions. But right now, we'll open it up to our, our other viewers. So Lucas, over to you.
2: All right, thank you, sir. So we'll just start with a written question. So uh, Peter Garrison says, uh, the uh, the space priorities framework mentions leading efforts for warning and mitigation against potential near-Earth object impacts. Uh, NASA, FEMA, the Space Force and Space Com recently conducted a tabletop exercise. Can we expect this administ- administration to publish an executive order specifying roles and missions for DOD and other agencies? Thanks,
1: Pete, I appreciate the question. Um, so I... Uh, I have to admit, I wasn't able to participate in that tabletop exercise, but some of my colleagues uh, from other parts of the White House were, and I haven't quite gotten a readout of it yet, so I'm sorry I don't have a really satisfying answer to your question of whether or not specifically we're going to issue any sort of executive order or other kinds of guidance. But I guess, you know, sort of uh, what I can say is, you know, the fact that planetary protection, or excuse me, planetary defense was mentioned in the priorities framework, the fact that these exercises are occurring, I think demonstrates, you know, this administration's commitment to work that actually has gone on for a number of administrations to make sure that we're really prepared for these, like, low probability but high consequence events.
2: Okay, great. Uh, next, we'll go to Marcia Smith.
3: Hi, Audrey. Nice to see you. I was curious, there's all this talk and has been for all these years about the need for space traffic management and getting the Department of Commerce involved. And you talked about that this morning, but it doesn't seem that a lot of progress is being made on that front. And I see that in the omnibus appropriations bill that came out overnight, that Congress is still not going to elevate the Office of Space Commerce out of NOAA and NESDIS. And I'm just curious, what is the administration doing to work with Congress to finally get this resolved? And finally, get some action going on this front.
1: Yeah, thanks, Marcia, for the question. I have to admit, I haven't read all three thousand pages that came out, you know, sometime overnight. Uh, so I don't, I haven't fully digested uh, what's in the omnibus. Uh, but uh, you know, I will just say, as I as I mentioned in my remarks, um, it is absolutely critical that we bolster the authority and the resources, uh, most importantly, given to the Commerce Department. So I don't know how much money is in the bill. Maybe you can tell me I didn't actually look at it this morning. Uh, but I think it's really getting that resource picture right is is, is frankly what's been inhibiting progress. Um, we need people, we need technology, we need programs right, in order to advance the work in the Department of Commerce. And yes, we are working quite closely as a White House team with the Department of Commerce to figure out what are the resources that they need and to figure out how to, uh, the best way to, uh, to get those resources.
3: If I can just quickly follow up on that, is it resources or is it organization? Because I think a lot of people feel that what it needs is the level of visibility, at least at the no administrators level, if not at the Secretary of Commerce's level, and so yes, money is always important, but I really thought that elevating it out of NESDIS was just as critical. So is the administration trying to get Congress to make that move? Is that just as important as the money?
1: I'm not going to speak to sort of the organizational piece of it, because um, I think there are a lot of different arguments that you can make on the value of where it- you know, a number of different places within the Department of Commerce of where the organization could be. And so I think, you know, at the moment, um, uh, the resource picture is probably the bigger one. Okay,
2: thanks. Okay, great. The next question is from uh, Pamela Lincoln. She says, if the Department of Commerce is responsible for safety in space, then what department should be responsible for space debris?
1: Yeah, thanks, Pam. I mean, uh, you know, so everybody has to be responsible for mitigating uh, the creation of space debris, right? Any Space operator that uh, is launching into space uh, absolutely has to be following, you know, sort of at a minimum, uh, you know, the debris mitigation standards, uh, whether those are the international standards, the regulatory standards or the standards we have in policy, you know, sort of depending on what kind of operator you are, if you're government or private sector and where your sort of license and authority comes from. Um, In terms of the remediation side, I mean, I think that's a little bit of a more difficult question. Um, There isn't a natural home within the US government, quite frankly, for, you know, someone to go up and remediate debris. There are also a whole host of policy and legal challenges uh, in terms of thinking through how we do that. Uh, But I'm actually uh, encouraged uh, by not only the work um, that we're seeing coming out of the private sector but also some of the internal deliberations that we've been having on how do we push you know that work forward um and so i don't want to speculate on whether there would be you know sort of one natural home or not um i actually think it's it's, it's sort of like everyone's problem and so everyone needs to be part of the solution
2: okay great next we'll go to uh Stu pettis
0: hey Andre. it's uh Stu pettis uh, now with uh, afa stem programs and i'd love to talk stem with you offline but uh My question was really in your discussions with General Chilton, you uh, talked about the need to build a robust and resilient space architecture so that we could respond to any uh, uh, attack in space. I I think we've seen in so many uh, shriver war games, first mover advantage, uh, you know, it's very tough to uh, fight your way back. Is the grand strategy being proposed by this administration uh, to basically take that first shot? and have enough res- uh, residual capability that we fight our way back? Or what is the strategy? I just, I, I've never been able to, not that I believe that the United States should move first always, but first mover advantage is such a tough nut to crack. How do we overcome that? Thanks.
1: Thanks, Sue. It's good to hear from you and thanks for the question. Um, you know, I'm not sure that first mover advantage is as sacrosanct as we might have once thought. I think first mover advantage is a is obviously um, real when you have a small number of, as General Heighton liked to say, you know, fat, juicy targets in space and where first mover advantage can take out a considerable amount of your capability. Um, I don't know whether first mover advantage is actually true if you have a more resilient space architecture. So I think we've got to really dig into that. Um, we've got to do that analysis to think about how do the dynamics of, um, Uh, how do the dynamics, the crisis dynamics change uh, when you fundamentally change the way that your architecture uh, is built? And I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of thinking that all the way through uh, because we actually have to do the hard work of thinking about what do those architectures look like, looking at different vignettes, different scenarios. Um, As you mentioned, our war games are a great um, tool for that and really sort of questioning some of these long, long held assumptions in the space community that are really just a function of how we did things in the past.
2: Thanks, Audrey. Great. The next question comes from Victoria Sampson. She asks Has Russia's invasion of Ukraine affected US thinking and support for an ASAT test moratorium? Uh,
1: Thanks, Victoria. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, we haven't actually seen limited, although not zero. Um, space activities related to the current situation in Ukraine, and um, and I'm not sure that's necessarily what would affect my thinking on uh, you know an, a moratorium on debris generating ASATs. I think the more pertinent um, uh, event was really Russia's uh, destructive ASAT test last November, which was um, you know a reckless and irresponsible act that put um, you know our astronauts aboard the International Space Station, as well as Russia's own cosmonauts aboard the International Space Station. That act put them at risk. Um, So as you heard in the National Space Council meeting in December, Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Kath Hicks, talked about how the DOD supports efforts basically to make sure that that never happens again. And so we are thinking very hard uh, about what kind of norms would make sense in that regard.
2: Okay, great. The uh, next question comes from uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Jason Hunt He says, uh, given the relevancy of our space operations and the threats to our space strategy, we saw last year the House submitted language in their FY22 NDAA to establish a Space National Guard. Uh, also, the Space Force and the National Guard have determined it will cost about $250,000 to establish a Space National Guard. Uh, can you give us your thoughts on this potential space policy? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, you know, the administration's, uh, the statement of administration policy Uh, for last year's um, when the NDAA was being debated uh, said quite clearly that the administration does not support the establishment of a Space National Guard. Um, There was a Congressional Budget Office estimate, and I don't actually have the number here with me today, uh, but that did estimate the cost to be quite uh, higher, a considerable amount higher. Um, than some of the estimates that you just raised. So I think there's a really open question about whether or not the establishment of a Space National Guard would be, uh, you know, sort of a low cost um, uh, proposition. Uh, But furthermore, you know, I think we really have an opportunity with the establishment of the Space Force to think about what a 21st century military force looks like and not necessarily just copy and paste the models that we have, um, you know, from the Air Force over to the Space Force. Um, Really need to think about what would the role of our Guard and forces who, yes, have been performing space missions for a while, what are those appropriate roles? What are those Title 32 authorities from the Guard that you would actually need to have um, in a space force uh, or for space forces? So I think that really hard thinking about uh, what are the missions that you would need Space Guard forces to perform, certainly while they're in their state capacity, and then how would those resources um, uh be used uh in their federal capacity right this is actually you know it's not just about the cost it's also about the missions um, and so I'm, I'm very hopeful that we will take a hard look um, as actually the loss directed us to in terms of what that future force ought to look like for the space force
2: okay hey, great actually a couple questions related to this subject let's uh, pick up from one uh, participant here uh they ask might the current administration push for space-based solar power demonstrator and deployment also considering the current energy crisis.
1: Thanks, uh, thanks. I'm sure that was a peak question too. Um, I, you know, I have to admit, I haven't spent a whole lot of time looking at space-based uh, solar power, um, but you're right with the current energy crisis, obviously the need to diversify our sources of energy is strong. Um, uh, I don't really have much for you on that one.
2: All right, uh, next question Question comes from uh, Colonel Timothy Boss from uh, US SpaceCon, it says the President through the unified command plan, created a space OR for the first time with Commander U.S. Spacecom designated the AOR lead. Given the large number of stakeholders operating, testing, and conducting activities within the AOR, including multiple U.S. organizations, what is the administration doing to ensure and or compel synchronization of U-activities in space?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tim, for the question. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question, actually, and one that I personally want to dig in a little bit more. Because when I think about the terrestrial analogy, uh, where you have combatant commanders who have particular regions, you know, AORs that they're responsible for, I'm not actually entirely sure what their responsibilities are in terms of coordinating and synchronizing, and actually how those responsibilities relate to uh, the responsibility of, of, say, the ambassador, our our ambassadors in the region, our chiefs of mission. And while I realize it's not a perfect analogy because obviously we don't have any ambassadors in space, maybe one day in the far, far future, um, but nonetheless, right, you have this combatant commander who is responsible for uh, maintaining kind of awareness of everything that's going on in space. Um, So I think a certain amount of coordination is is absolutely necessary. Um, And I think we should look at sort of other models to figure out, you know, what that might look like.
2: Great. Next question comes from Rob Olson. He says, uh, "What consideration is being given to space policy and capability outside of near Earth orbit? Uh, for example, asteroid mining, use of the Lagrange points, uh, and Mars human habitation?"
1: Yeah. Well, so first of all, I mean, one of the things that we do call out in the space priorities framework is the need to—I um, uh, forget the word we use—to sort of foster a, a cis-lunar our activities in cis-lunar space, right? Recognizing uh, that as we continue uh, to sort of push out in terms of Well, going back to the moon, establishing a presence there, um, that this sort of cislunar uh, need for uh, logistics and whatnot is actually quite critical. And so I think there's going to be quite a bit of focus from the administration looking specifically at cislunar. Um, In terms of asteroid resources, or excuse me, asteroid mining and other what I would call non traditional. Uh, space missions. Um, I think this is where, you know, putting in place regulations that provide certainty and clarity to our private sector are really important. Um, those kinds of missions were not necessarily envisioned in the current regulatory structure that we have. Um, and so the need for, uh, you know, us to have a process so that industry understands what regulations will apply to them is is very important. And then finally, I mean, you know, looking beyond, I mean, I think we're there in, in the realm of, of our space exploration uh, goals and objectives, um, uh, which, uh, remain, uh, I think quite consistent.
2: Great. Uh, next question is, uh, considering the current tensions with Russia, uh, and how that might affect the international space station, does the administration see that there will only be commercial private stations in Leo from the U S side, or in the next five years, there might be also a NASA space force owned operated small station in Leo.
1: Yeah, I mean, so uh, back in December, uh, the United States announced our intention to continuing the International Space Station operations through 2030. Uh, So we are committed to continuing to use the ISS as a platform uh, for research, um, for technology development, and frankly, for enabling future exploration of the moon uh, and beyond. I certainly hope that Russia shares our interests in continuing the use of the International Space Station um, as such a vital platform, uh, frankly, not just for our nations, but for humanity as a whole. Um, But at the same time, we are investing in commercial LEO destinations. Um, I don't know that any of those are necessarily... Uh, with sort of current funding uh, expected to come online um, in the next in the timeline that you proposed, um, but that certainly would be you know a potential option if you know it's even feasible to accelerate those efforts with more money.
2: Okay, hey, great. Uh, the next question is from Ted Ogren. He says, with the establishment of the U.S. Space Force, uh, ASAP Space Acquisition, and the Integration Space Acquisition Council, uh, U.S. Space Command, etc., what does the administration see as next for DOD in space organization and governance?
1: Ooh, Ted, what a great question. It's nice to hear from you. Um, So look, Ted, I mean, we live the dream together and uh, it was a big change that happened uh, with the FY20 um, NDAA of establishing the Space Force, creating that position, creating the ASC for Space Policy. I mean, there uh, in the last three or four years, there has just been a tremendous amount of change in the DoD organizational structure for space. Um, And I think we have got to live with that world for a little while before we start considering additional changes. I mean, organizational change takes time. Um, You know, even here two years on, uh, you know, with both the Space Force and the Space Command, right? We're still a little bit in standup mode. Um, And the same is absolutely true for the other positions that you mentioned, uh, like the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force and the Assistant Secretary of Defense that I mentioned too. So we've got to, I think I think we got to like live with those for a little bit before we start thinking about how we change things
2: even further. uh, We have a couple questions from students actually here. Um, They're saying uh, STEM is hugely important, yet the political science discipline is increasingly in demand. Where are those political science professional vacuums? Thank you.
1: Yeah, so look, I'm a policy person, and I still get to do space. Um, And so I think, you know, one of the things that I love about working in the space industry is that there's room for everyone. Um, You know, obviously, there's a there's a high demand for, uh, you know, scientists and engineers. uh, But that is not the only way that you can get involved in our nation's space program. Um, And While I don't know whether political scientists in particular, uh, are, well, I don't, I don't want to speak to who's in demand and who's not in demand. The idea is that there are, there are, if you want to do political science, do space policy. If you want to do, uh, Business, go into business development. If you want to do law, you can be a space lawyer, right? I mean, just because you're not a scientist or an engineer doesn't mean that there's no place for you in our business. Um, And I think that's something that people often overlook, you know, when we talk about the focus on increasing, um, you know, STEM education and whatnot. Um, There's many, many ways to get involved in our space industry.
2: Okay, great. I think we have uh, one more question from uh, Colonel uh, Elvert Gardner. He says, given the ongoing technical maturation of hypersonic missiles and the unique challenges they pose for traditional ballistic missile defense systems, is there any appetite uh, for more research and development on active space-based missile defense capability?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I do not want to preview, you know, as, as you may be aware, uh, you know, there are a number of reviews going on within the Department of Defense, uh, the National Defense Strategy, the Nuclear Posture Review, as well as the Missile Defense Review. And I, I actually just don't want to get ahead of those reviews and, and preview anything uh, that may or may not be in those documents. Sorry.
0: Well, Audrey, uh, I think we're approaching the end of our hour here. And I, I just want to be remiss in not closing by thanking you for Coming across the river to the Mitchell Institute, taking time out of what I'm sure is an incredibly busy schedule to join us today. And so on behalf of the Mitchell Institute and our Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence, as well as on behalf of all of our participants on our Space Power Forum today, I want to thank you for taking your time and I hope we can have future dialogues as we go forward in the next few years. So again, thank you.
1: Thanks very much. I enjoyed it.